Consequence Podcast Network. Hey, everybody. It's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian. And we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. What, which, this, that, or the other? From Bonnaroo to Coachella, traversing the music festival landscape can be tricky. That's where we come in with high fives for everyone. The What Podcast with Brad, Barry, Lord Taco, dedicated to exploring the entire festival scene. Brad has worked in the radio industry for more than 20 years and currently lives in Brooklyn, where he is program director for three stations, including one in New York, one in Detroit, and one in Miami. Barry's been a reporter for the Chattanooga Times Free Press, covering all aspects of the entertainment industry since 1987. That's before you were born. Lord Taco, the smart guy who makes these podcasts on our website, thewhatpodcast.com, work. Also really good at identifying babies, loves blue-haired moms, PBR, and his beautiful Volkswagen bus. We all fell in love with the Bonnaroo Festival years ago, not only because of the amazing bands that play there every year, but also because of the incredible community spirit that has developed around it. Radiate positivity. And we really like talking about the inside baseball stuff when it comes to putting on a huge music festival. So join us. You can hear the What Podcast on the Consequence Podcast Network or anywhere you find your favorite podcast. Welcome, listeners, to the story behind the song. I'm your host, Peter Chotti of Creative Media. Devo was a band that defied all expectations when it exploded onto the music scene in the late 1970s amidst the music industry overcome by disco and frequently overly bloated stadium rock. The band's first album, 1978's Question Are We Not Men? We Are Devo, shred all of that with blistering offbeat guitars smashed elegantly against the backdrop of Freudian lyrics. But the band really hit the Mothersbaugh load, as in Mark Mothersbaugh, co-lead with Gerald Casale, when Devo released its third album, Freedom of Choice, only two years later. That's when Devo shattered all expectations again, releasing its now signature song, Whip It, a completely different post-poppy synth-driven dance song that fit right into the new wave lexicon and rocketed up the charts. In this special bonus episode, I revisit my interview with Gerald Casale from late 2020, since we never released the audio and video podcast versions before, Consequence only posted the text, and since, as hard as it is to believe, Devo celebrates its 50th anniversary this year. It is a vibrant interview of a still vital artist and band that continue to make their mark as they look forward to touring once again in a now post-pandemic world and to celebrate a half-century of de-evolution. So take a listen as we dive into the story behind the song with Gerald Casale of Devo. Great to see you, Gerald. Good to see you. So, Gerald, let's start with Whip It, because Whip It is perhaps your best-known song. Right. It's the 40th anniversary of it. So tell us a little bit about how that came to be and the inspiration sure. and everything about it. Sure, because I mean, obviously with that, we lucked out because we finally got air, airplay, radio airplay. And until then, you know, Devo were really the pioneers who got scalped where the prevailing aesthetics and politics of FM radio uh, programmers were that well, Devo was verboten. You know, what the hell is this stuff? We want rock and roll. So they were, those stations were, were controlled by guys that were still mired in late 60s, early 70s, rock and roll lore, right? That involved, you know, the independent promoters with the drugs and the prostitutes and, the, you know, satin record company ball jackets and the, the long hair and the mutton chops and the whole thing. And so Devo comes along in the midst of that and they're like just so off-put and so disgusted like what the hell is this these guys they're all clean shaven with short hair and they're wearing these yellow plastic suits and they're talking about de-evolution like get them out of here right yeah but by 1980 
obviously what had happened is there was a sea change. There was a shift and radio was coming around. People understood that this new music that had been so, whatever the word is, rejected or, you know, become a pariah. It wasn't going away. In fact, it was getting better and there were more and more groups and there was something building and it was a big deal. When we were uh, recording Freedom of Choice, of course, we were feeling all that and aware of all that. And we were in a rehearsal studio in Hollywood, California in 1979, you know, rented a tiny little place on Cole Avenue in Hollywood. You know, it was a dump, of course. But we'd go there every day. We'd show up around one, one in the afternoon and, and work until nine o'clock, 10 o'clock, and then grab a late dinner. And we were, of course, young and motivated and still this functioning unit, this, this collaboration where everybody was excited to be there and everybody was excited to, to work on these songs. We had basically um, exhausted our previous catalog of songs that we had written for four or five years in our um, basement and garage days in, in, in Akron, Ohio. And now we were interested in, in moving forward to the next phase of Devo. And, and of course, we just as artists and musicians, we were no longer interested in just repeating what we had done with the same sounds and the same beats and the same type of lyrics. We, we had new ideas. That's what Devo was. We were experimental. We were moving, changing artists. So we were being driven by this group idea that we all agreed on to um, be Devo's version of R&B influenced electronic music. That was as hilarious as it sounds because nobody would listen to Freedom of Choice and go, oh yeah, R&B, <laughs> you know, they wouldn't. But there was basic agreements like we were going to change the kinds of beats we were uh, going to play to. They were going to be more danceable coming from funk and R&B. And I was going to play a mini Moog bass, not a bass guitar, because we were very influenced by songs by Stevie Wonder hmm. and, and uh, other That's groups. Interesting. I know. It's very interesting. Nobody know, right? And, and we were very, we loved... Uh, the Gap Band, and we loved, uh, who, who did You Dropped a Bomb on Me? Is oh, yeah. No, that's a great song. Um, I think, it, isn't that the Gap Band? That may be the Gap Band. We loved them. I think them. it's the Gap Band. What's that? I, I said we loved them. Yeah. And, and we loved the Ohio Players, and, and we loved early Prince. We were listening to Prince. My hometown, Minneapolis. Oh, my God, Prince. He really did it for us. We actually saw him at some place that had been a roller rink at the corner of La Cienega Boulevard and Santa Monica Boulevard in 1979, when he still hadn't really broken through, but Warners had signed him and we were invited to the show down there. At, I can't remember the name of the place. It had been a roller rink, but they turned it into a- uh, CVS you know, drugstore. Yeah, food. Yeah, it was where the drugstore is now food, concerts, so there's a dance floor, but then there were all these, you know, tiered seats. And Prince comes out, of course, in a uh, Burberry beige trench, trench coat, bikini underpants, garter belts and hose, and six inch high heels and nothing else. And he starts doing the songs from Controversy before great. it was released. Yeah, great album. And we were just, as artists, we were blown away. We were jealous. It was amazing. And he was scaring everybody, of course. <laughs> but we were just listening to what he was doing, and it was so good, right? It was just so good. That's fascinating. So anyway. Yeah, I, I, that's fascinating, because I don't think it's obvious to people that Devo would be inspired and influenced by Prince. No, I, I realize that. But Bob Mothersbaugh and I, in particular, were really big fans of historical R&B that was coming out of Detroit in the mid-60s through early 70s. Because back in Ohio, one of the main AM stations that came through was out of Detroit. And we heard all that stuff early when most of the country wasn't. And so, you know, we were big fans of stuff like working in a coal mine 
you know, uh, Smokey Robinson and the Miracles with uh, James Jamerson on bass, like Tears of a Clown. Mm -hmm. So all that was being factored into this music we were writing. And uh, I loved learning how to play Moog bass and what that was doing to the kind of songs we wrote because I was interacting with Alan and Alan was laying down more, you know, two, four funky uh, uh, dance beats. And we were very excited. That was, that was it, you know, that nobody would expect this from Devo. We were already doing this stuff and that was the reason, that was the reason that we chose Bob Martello. And it worked out because he, you know, he was the perfect guy to record music that was based on a more dry drum set with funky synthesizer lines and uh, as on bass. What we would do every day then in 1979 in this rehearsal studio on Cole Street in Hollywood was share everything. Mark and I kept sketchbooks and lyric books. We were both artists, that's, how, that's our background. And we would bring in and share anything we had come up with creatively. So we'd lay them out on a table and anybody in the band could look at what we'd been trying to write or what we'd been thinking. And Mark at that time had uh, set up a, a rudimentary recording system in his bedroom so that he could play sketches and riffs onto a uh, cassette machine and then mix it down. Mm -hmm. So he would start bringing in things that we didn't create together in the Cole rehearsal hall to, for us to listen to if we liked something. And, you know, I would diligently listen to everything he brought in, in addition to him listening to everything that I would play in the studio, like here's an idea for a song here, here. And Whip It came about from four different cassette tapes at different times over a two week period. And they were each sketches that embody pieces of the composition that became Whippet, but they were in different BPMs, different instrumentation. And in fact, the chorus to Whippet was a piece he had done just with a keyboard running through some uh, like harmonizer detuner. And it was in a different time signature than 2-4. Than but that's the part that became do do down, But it was going down, It was almost just like um, almost just like abstract, you know, classical music meets Schoenberg or something. But you know, there were things in each of them that I liked, and I started saying, why don't we combine these things over a central beat? Alan came up with what became the famous Whippet beat, which we thought at this time was just so cool and strange. We just loved it because I mean, it didn't really sound like any other beat that anybody was doing because it was kind of like jazz meets disco. And only Alan could do a beat like that because he came from a jazz background and he was a super accomplished drummer before Devo. He had, he had an amazing metronomic feel. That guy was the human metronome. Huh. So he laid down this beat and we all liked it so much that then started putting the parts from these four different tapes together into one composition. So he heard the pieces and then he created the beat? I'm not sure Alan heard those pieces. He just created this beat. But once I heard it and Mark loved it, then it was like, let's use that beat to put these four pieces of music together like this, right? And I had these lyrics I had written already that I, for six months, I had no use for because I thought, well, they're so strange. Nobody's going to like them and they're not rock and roll. And I wrote them only because I'd been reading Thomas Pynchon's book, uh, Gravity's Rainbow. He created all these poems and limericks that were satires of American exceptionalism, like Horatio Alger, you're number one, you're special. It's only you, you can do it, you know. And it's this whole you know, the whole propaganda of America that keeps people going in capitalism, right? And I I thought they were so funny and so clever. You know, I'm laughing out loud alone in my bedroom reading this book. <laughs> yeah. I thought, I want to make one of those. I'm going to make a Thomas Pynchon kind of limerick. And I wrote Whip It, like in one night in my bedroom. It just, so how does that, how does that come to you? Do you have a typical process when you, when lyrics come to you or no? No, no. 
No, the, the main process was write them down now because you're going to forget them in the morning. Mm. You know, that, that was the truth. Mm-hmm. You come up with these brilliant ideas and then you think there's no way you're going to forget that. And then you do. It's like a dream where you have this amazing, poignant dream and it's so significant to you and so potentially life-changing. And then you wake up and you start getting interrupted by, you know, your housemate, your girlfriend, phone calls. Three hours later, it was what was that dream? And so much creativity is like a dream anyway, uh, because you're best when you get past the effort, the conscious effort, you know, the kind of constipated, forced logic effort of coming up with something. That's not creativity. Creativity usually comes in an inspirative moment, like boom, you know, it's the light bulb. And so you better re- get it, some evidence of it, right? So anyway, that, so anyway, when, when, when we started putting these pieces together and everybody loved this composition so much, we started wanting to play it together. I went back to the Whippet lyrics and, you know, showed Mark and showed him, you know, hey, let's, I could sing this here, you know, and I could sing that there. And they just fit. Suddenly we had the right music for these lyrics that had no music previously. And the point of all this long drawn out story is that when you're a band that's collaborating freely, when there's no real hierarchical politics, and when you're sharing this information, great things can happen. That's when the best stuff gets made. And people are on the same page. So nobody's resisting going, wait a minute, well, I didn't write those lyrics, so we can't put them on there, right? And yeah. that's how the fact that if you look at the Devo catalog of over 150 songs, 90% of them are 50-50 collaborations between Mark and I, because we worked well together. And almost without exception, the best songs were done that way. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Well, I kind of think of you, it's, it's interesting because it is 50-50 when you look at your all your catalog of great songs. It's almost like you're the Lennon and McCarthy of New Wave. And yeah, I would like to think that. I, no, but it, it, you know, it's, it, but it's that kind of a collaboration where there was no need to parse out who did what. It was just, it was a team. Creating- no, right. Because if you looked after the facts, see, you don't up front. It's like people that worry about how will history view me up front? Well, that's ridiculous. You better just go do what you can do the best you can do it. And then you can figure that out later. So just write the good songs and then look back on them. And guess what? Oh, they were 50-50. You know, you don't like start off with this has to be (laughs) 50-50 because then you're in trouble. Then you're typical. You become you know, Republican businessmen, not artists. Right. And, uh, and so what I, what I revere and respect and love in memory so much is that at that point in time, how Whippet got written was in the true spirit of Devo, uh, excitement, openness, collaboration, working together for the greater good. Like, we just want the best songs, right? Let's throw out the dumb stuff and what sucks. And we just want the best. Because like if the rest of the band wasn't into it, I knew that that means I went off on some tangent. Because regardless of who writes the stuff, the, the real test is if people who didn't write it love it. <laughs> so, so speaking and, of and, that. And the band was all there. You know, they cooperated and collaborated in ways and, 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 and they did things that were so essential to the, to the recording of the song and the nuances of the details of the song, that without them, those songs wouldn't sound like that. There's no way. 
Everybody was there. And, and they, in Devo, it wasn't like we had session guitar players. I mean, we couldn't even find a guitar player that was, you know, worth his salt that would touch what we were doing. They, they had no respect for it and you couldn't have talked them into it. We could have only had, you know, our brothers, Bob Mothersbaugh and Bob Casale doing this because they understood us and they trusted us. So they didn't think they were being made fun of or taken for a ride when we said, well, could you do something like this? And it's a ridiculous guitar line that no cool <laughs> musician would ever play, right? Because Devo was not cool. Well, you were through being cool. That's very yeah. true. That, that was a joke, right? As if we ever were. Yeah, that yeah. was the joke. Did you? Anyway. Uh, so, Gerald, did you know once you had caught that internal magic with the band, you know, and you recorded it, did you feel that you had a hit on your hand? No, not at all. But again, because Devo probably couldn't have written a hit on purpose if, if our lives depended on it. But what we did do as artists is only only pursue things that we thought were really good, that we were proud of, right? So on a record, when you hear freedom of choice, you as an audience may quickly make judgments about which songs are great and what are silly and what's not worked out enough or whatever. But as, as, you know, as damning as it may sound at the time, any song we put on there, we thought was really good, right? Mm -hmm. We didn't, we didn't like assign this one's a hit, this one's a deep cut. It was just like, these are great. We're putting them on. We're putting them on this record. And of course, the record company searching desperately for a hit because the other story here is that Freedom of Choice was going to be our last record. Warner Brothers sent an A&R man out to us in 1979 before we started recording any demos for Freedom of Choice. And we were playing a tour uh, supporting Duty Now for the Future, our second record. We were at the Palladium in New York City. And just before the show, our road manager is called into the green room and it's some guy from Warner's who I don't remember because he wasn't our regular A&R man, but he was in the city. And they had this long discussion in there and a closed door. And then we're backstage getting our costumes on to start the show for the Duty Now for the Future concert. And this tour manager, Ron Stone, says, hey guys, um, you know, I was just in this conversation with so-and-so and we go, yeah, what's going on there? He goes, well, Bad news. He says, if this next record doesn't have a hit on it, it's your last record. Don't worry about the contract. They're going to breach it and they're going to invite us to sue them. So they're not going forward with your five album deal because they don't like duty now for the future. So this is what the message we get before we go on stage. And yeah, that's th the thank you, record company. Oh, yeah. And thank you, Ron Stone, for yeah, exactly. waiting for after the concert. Yeah. But uh, Devo had enough fight in them and enough disrespect for illegitimate authority that I think we went out and played with more intensity than ever that night. But then what we what our response was, of course, to this threat was, fuck it, we're just going to do everything we were just talking about doing among ourselves, which was this R&B influenced music with a Moog bass like hey, if they didn't like Duty Now for the Future, fuck them. Wait till they hear stuff that's more electronic with a, with a Moog synthesizer bass compared to the first two records. What would they think of that, right? So there was and, no, uh, so when you did that, it sounds like, it, was that a conscious reaction to that moment? No, just, no, all it did is, is peak our resolve to do exactly what we'd been kind of talking about informally. Yeah, and do it on purpose. So it was like, okay, because we thought, oh, they'll really hate this because this is all, this is a completely new direction for Devo. Like it'll piss off our cult members. It'll piss off the punks. We knew that the, the hardcore people that are orthodox would, would just go, what the hell? This is in Devo, man. You know, where's the heavy rock and roll? You know, so. Did you we have did. any? Did you have any fear about that? Like, or did were you? No, not at all. It was more like, okay, we're gonna go down. Let's go down in flames. That's what it was like. And that's, in retrospect, the only proper reaction an artist can have, because yeah. obviously, <laughs> there's risk in being creative. 
I mean, really, did anybody, Jimi Hendrix, Are You Experienced, the first record, if you, if you had told anybody six months previously with some kind of like surreptitious time warp, here's the music you're going to love. Here's the music you want to listen to and you won't be able to take off the turntable. They would have said, you're nuts. That shit is noise, right? Yeah. Well, guess what? He releases it. And what happens? Every kid wears out the vinyl in the first month and he changes music forever and it explodes. You have to be willing to jump off the cliff or jump into the void, you know, like Luke Skywalker. You got to do mm-hmm. it. So we did it. And the only song that the record company focused on, because they were desperately searching for some reason to make money and not cut us from the roster, was Girl You Want. They decided Girl You Want was it. And that's where they put their marketing efforts. So they, it was their one last peon to Devo. We're going to go with Girl You Want. And they put, it's like a roulette wheel. They put all their money on black, right? Yeah. And guess what? It, it stiffed. And well, we don't understand why it did. You know, it isn't like we didn't like that song, because I explained to you. We, we loved every song we put on there. And it sounded very digestible, very accessible, but it didn't catch. And so it was a foregone conclusion. And when we started our tour for Freedom of Choice, that this was it, right? You know, uncontrolled. I mean, uh, you know, really wanted failed. They weren't fo- going to follow it with anything. They thought the title track, Freedom of Choice, was a non-starter, which is also pretty silly. I love that song. I guess song. if Axl Rose covered it, it would have been a number one hit. It's a great song. <laughs> and uh, so we start the tour and we're playing, you know, four and 500 seaters and, you know, cool clubs around America. And this guy named Cal Rudman down in Florida, who was a regional programmer, had quite a lot of power. And he had some Cal Rudman, you know, Monday morning quarterback or report sheet. You know, he he put out a as a programmer, he put out this sheet that went out to all the southeastern United States DJs, to all the stations. But still, there was no like centralized kind of corporate reality like Clearwater. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. DJs had a lot of individual autonomy. Yeah. And people regionally could play what they wanted. A much better time in America. Freedom. Well, Cal, Cal, when Warners had sent him, you know, here's the song, drill you want, blah, blah, blah. But they, of course, also send the promotional materials and the record. Cal Rudman was an old style programmer. He didn't just take uh, payoff money and, and, and drugs. He listened to the record. He actually sat down, listened to Debo's record, and he decided Whip It was an incredible song. So on his own, he started playing Whip It down on a few stations in Florida, and I think up into Georgia. I mean, that part of the United States playing Debo, first of all, is ridiculous. It caught the ear of several DJs, and within three weeks, it was in New York City. Once it hit the New York City FM airwaves, we had to stop our tour. We had to reconfigure the whole thing for bigger places. Hmm. The the agent in uh, L.A., which at the time was William Morris, Wayne Forte or whatever, he, he had to talk to the promoters in several areas, and suddenly... We start the tour up again and we're playing like 2,000 seaters, 3,000 seaters, and 5,000 seaters. And this thing is spreading around America. By the time we're done with our American tour, it's in the charts. It's moving up the charts. And that's when Warner said, you got to do a video, right? Because up until then, they thought, why are you doing videos? Videos are stupid. Why are you spending your money on making videos, Deal. There was no MTV. There was nothing, right? You know, Night Flight might have played them. Uh, there were about maybe a dozen videos at that point. They weren't called music videos. So on a break, before we went to Japan, because Japan had been scheduled for Devo, I shot the video to whip it in one 16-hour day in our rehearsal studio that we had at the time in a warehouse in L.A., I think within a month, MTV had three stations in three cities that they started, they broke in, boom. And they started playing with it in these three cities. And it went through the roof. And uh, 
And then they got, by 1981, that next beginning of the next year, they, they had franchise with American Express Money. And so Bob Pittman and John Sykes, who started the company, came to us and said, we need all your videos, man. We're going to make you big stars because now they needed programming. But we can't pay you. <laughs> so they had, you know, we had five videos in the can at that point, including Whippet. And they started playing them all. Yeah. And we, and then Whippet went into the top 10 and it just, that was that. Devo exploded. And so, so perhaps without Cal focusing on this song, we would not be having the same conversation today. Yeah, I don't think so. I think I have to say that, you know, this is how things work too. It's so much is chance and luck and serendipity. And no matter how hard you try or how much talent you have or don't have, you know, here's 10 people with immense talent. One of them hits because the gods shined, smiled on that person with other things that cannot be quantified. Yeah, if, if it hadn't been for Cal, very possibly nobody else would have picked up the ball. And that would have been our last record. And Devo would be a, a small footnote in new wave history. Pretty amazing. When that happened, did you feel like did it feel like it was, well, it must've felt like it was happening, but did it change the dynamics of the band at all and how your process was going forward from a creative standpoint? Unfortunately it did not right away. So that was the fortunate part, not right away. But you know, for me, I just felt elated because I had always worked from concepts and plans and ideas so that I felt vindicated. In other words, here, this was the idea. I was working for the idea of Devo to make Devo bigger than any of the individuals so that we could do, we could, you know, even like a good corporation, diversify and do these things we had talked about, movies, you know, soundtracks, a play, you know, this was it. You know, now somebody's going to take us seriously. We'll have a bigger voice. We can take meetings with more important people and we can get these ideas done that are still just in our heads. So I was elated because this was vindication. And, and suddenly people were being very nice, doors were opening, could get just about any meeting you wanted. I can get into any restaurant any given night. Yeah. <laughs> they knew us. And so, and I was, and now some money started trickling in from royalties and it was like, oh, wow, look at this. I can buy a new car. <laughs> I, I, I don't have to worry if it runs or not, it's gonna run. So Devo was never about, it wasn't against being popular in terms of like mass appeal, it, right? But it was more Not about- me. It was more Not about getting, having a platform for you to get your ideas across. Were your ideas, when you thought about it that way, was it your ideas to entertain? Was it your ideas to make people think? Was it your ideas to actually have a political agenda? What was it? Yes, well, yes to all that for me. You know, and I thought that was shared by the band, but in retrospect, after years have gone by, it really wasn't. But that's I was the idealist, you know, you know, mark me stupid. I was the guy that was the cheerleader for Devo. And and yes, uh, my heroes were the bands that were both artistically valid and popular because that's the hardest juxtaposition in the world. It's easy to be artsy and obscure and bum everybody out. And it was easy to create crap that, that was so, you know, dissolute that the next year you couldn't even remember it because it was so bland, right? But I mean, my heroes were the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, you know, uh, uh, the Who, Jimi Hendrix, David Bowie. These guys were artists and they were accessible. They wrote great hit songs that have endured the test of time that people still love. 40, 50, 60 years later. That's art. That is art. And that is what we see with your music, obviously, which is still resonates as much as it resonated then. And, and you know, you talk about what's so funny about how life works. When you tell the story about Girl You Want, and that's the song that the label really wanted to push, and that it was it never got its day, but here we are. There is the Girl You Want is the theme song from a, a big show, MTV show, right? Actually, Uncontrollable Urges. Oh, excuse me. Sorry. Ridiculousness. But Ridiculousness. Girl, yes, but Girl You Want also has been in the pop culture. Used a lot, yes. Yeah, it's used a lot. 
Hey everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Let's go to the song Smart, Smart Patrol, Patrol. Mr. and yeah. Mr. Smart Patrol Mr. DNA. Mm-hmm. So that's a song that I chose because uh, as a longtime devotee, I, I I know your discography, and I just think it's a very interesting song. It, to me, it captures essence of both electronic but also the guitars together in a very yeah. interesting mix. So tell yeah a little bit about that song as well, like how that came to be. And you've done that several times in your songs. So like gut feeling, slap your mammy. Again, there's another one where you have two different ideas that come together and collide and yet work really well. You know, uh, my, my biggest regret about smart patrol DNA was that when we finally got to record it with Ken Scott, he was the wrong guy. That song live brings down the house every time. And it has brought down the house for 40 years, every time. And when we recorded it, this guy like poured saltpeter all over the power of that mix. He, he took all the <laughs> male hormones on that song <laughs> and just to me ruined it. That song deserves a new recording, but live, live, and there's some live recordings of it too that are so powerful. It brought down the house because what that song was all about was very early on, it was my attempt. I wrote Smart Patrol and Smart Patrol was not married to Mr. DNA at all. There was no Mr. DNA. And I wrote Smart Patrol in 1975 when we were still practicing at, you know, as an early, early iteration of Devo with Mark Mothersbaugh, Bob Mothersbaugh and his brother Jim on drums. Only four of us in Mr. Mother's Boss Sr.'s basement on Zurich Road in Northampton Township in, uh, yeah, in West Akron. And the equipment was there because Bob Mother's Boss had a rock and roll band called the Jitters. We really liked the way Bob played guitar, but we didn't really like the Jitters music. So he, he agreed to it and he was warming up to it. And we, in 1975, I, I showed everybody this progression in the lyrics to idea of almost creating an alter ego for the band Devo, even though Devo wasn't real yet, mm-hmm. but the Smart Patrol would be this like alter ego that could be used in a, in a play or a film so that we didn't have to be them. We could hire actors who would be the Smart Patrol playing our music. And so it's a band song, not a name check song, but a band song like you know, one guy sings one verse, then the next guy sings the next verse, then the next guy sings the third verse. And we each tell the audience and, and proclaim that we're tired of the soup du jour and we want to end this prophylactic tour. And so we're, you know, it's sad, right? It's a lament. And then, boom, the chorus. And now all three of us sing it together. We're the smart patrol, nowhere to go. Suburban robots will monitor reality. So this was like a... Um, a kind of a call to arms, like here's our terrible condition as blue collar spuds in Akron, Ohio, <laughs> navigating this awful culture that we found our part self part of in 1975. And it was awful. And uh, this was like right after, you know, the impeachment of Nixon, you know, this was really nasty stuff. And that's where we developed that real group thing where everybody's singing. Some people sing one part, some people sing another part. Right. And it's a it's a round. It's a trade off. Mm -hmm. It's an anthem. And we worked on that. And at first it was very low energy, (laughs) very protean. And as we as we got better and better, as we reached critical mass as musicians in a unit that played together by late 76, we're we've written a lot more songs. And now and we're playing a few live gigs and we're getting really good live. And we have Alan now as our drummer. And we're really firing on all cylinders, reaching that critical mass. And in one of our rehearsals, 
it was either Mark Mothersbaugh or my brother, Bob Casale, who had joined the band in 1976 early, who started playing that uh, two chord progression. And everybody, you know, and Alan started drumming and it was very punky and very, and we liked it. And Mark had written some lyrics based on this whole conversation we had ongoing about de-evolution and about the altruistic gene and human beings being important. You know, the only thing that kept us from being total murderers is the altruistic gene. And I had a theory that, you know, Christianity was based on uh, a anthropomorphization of the altruistic gene. In other words, Jesus was just spouting stuff that represented the altruistic gene in humans that, that drive them to not just be oriented towards themselves selfishly at the, at the expense of their brethren, of their children, you know, that, that they have a sense genetically, you know, predisposed, pre-conscious of just like good animals do, <laughs> of, of trying to save their tribe, their herd, their family, and, uh, you know, we had read about a lot about DNA and the altruistic gene. So he had written some funny stuff about that, you know, Mr. Kamakazi, Mr. DMA. So I worked on those lyrics with him. And suddenly we had the idea of putting them to this progression and doing another round like Smart Patrol. One guy sings the next line, one guy sings the next line, and then we sing together. And during rehearsals for live shows, when Alan was going to finish Smart Patrol, I think Bob Casale started playing the progression to Mr. DNA instead of ending the song, just kind of like jamming it together because everybody's energy was up, right? And we all laughed and liked that. And so we started practicing making it a medley because it just seemed like mashing those two up, they were thematically related. They, they complemented each other, made sense out of the smart control to sing Mr. DNA. And we practiced that and made it work as a medley, and it's that medley, that kick into the, like you think Smart Patrol has wasted you as the audience, and now it kicks up to the next level to a faster BPM and more insanity, and then finishes with the uh, reprise of the Smart Patrol. The figure. And once we did that a couple times live, and the audience went nuts, of course, it, it just became part of our lexicon of live stuff it's very and yeah it is very theatrical actually. it is totally theatrical and it was designed that way and it was what i had in mind at the time is you know for the devo movie that never happened or the devo musical that never happened it will and happen this, yeah and that this band called the smart patrol is a band that's keeping alive the legacy of devo who's been suppressed and written out of history so it's this young, these young guys that refuse to go with the program that are bringing this music to their people, like in the future. So that was the idea behind it back in 1975. And it still works today. And Pete, that, that's a, it, it is like a, um, a standard. It's, I think it's, you can't not do that song. Just like Gut Feeling, that was a standalone song. And then slap your mammy down, slap your pappy down. Okay, that was just some live thing that my brother and I would do based on a joke because we had grown up in Ohio around hillbillies. And one of our cousins would say, you slap your mammy down, you slap your pappy down, like a put down, right? And we remembered this and we were laughing about it one day. And then of course, as you know, as satire, we start singing it. And so it got jammed onto the end of, of gut feeling like in similar fashion to uh, Mr. DNA got slammed onto the end of, uh, of Smart Patrol. So between those, between Smart Patrol DNA and gut feeling slap your mammy, that's like a, a 10 minute orgasm live. That's just powerful to this day and nonstop. And the audience just goes over the edge. And by the way, I saw that, I saw that, at your, that um, show I was ta talking about, your show at Desert Days, yeah. where there was a very strong mix of young people and then people of my era right. um, 
who were all dancing, wearing the red hats and loving those songs and the energy of them. And so that's why I chose that song, because absolutely that is a, you know, that mix together is, is very powerful. And one thing you were talking about, it's interesting when you were talking about DNA and the altruistic genius and the conversations that you had about de-evolution with Mark. So, and I've looked at, I've read your book about all the ideas that you had growing up, you know, all all the, the diagrams and the pictures and the art and all of this. So you were all artists from day one, but you were, your philosophies, your discussions, your, your philosophical outlook was very real. It, it, right. So like when you, Uh, yeah, unfortunately, (laughs) I mean, I think de-evolution really started, you know, like, again, it's well documented, but it started in my graduate school days with my good academic friend, Bob Lewis, who was a poet and a, and a literature major. And uh, we started using the term, uh, not even politically, but just philosophically about what we were noting happening to the culture, that we didn't think progress was happening. We saw entropy, we saw things declining. We saw people's critical faculties and ability to reason crumbling in favor of uh, uh, conformity and um, you know tribalism and embracing sound bites and you know and, and this this coincided with the political landscape that was so frightening at the time and the dissolution of the economy are we and, talking uh, about are we talking about today or 50 years no, ago well no we're talking about we're talking about now 45 years ago yeah <laughs> and and what what's happening today quote trumps that what we're dealing with today makes that look like a precursor, like kindergarten version of the assault on reason and truth and democracy now. This is why there's a global push towards fascism, authoritarianism, the very reasons that we were talking about. Because you have a dumbed down populace who's also in trouble. They just want to keep their little gigs. Maybe they need two different gigs just to make the rent and just to find food and water that isn't totally contaminated and they've been beaten down and the rest have their head in the sand. And then there's those people that embrace illegitimate authority. They like the strong man because they're weak themselves and that gives them hope. And that's where we're at. And we've seen it in history and we thought we were beyond it, but given human nature, no, it always gets back to square one. The fight for reasonable people to establish liberty is never ending. Is never ending. It's you know it always only takes a little bit of concentrated goodness to defeat massive evil, but it it takes you know it always it takes more than you think though. So and, and we're right back there. So is it that altruistic gene that you believe that does that give you hope? Well, it used to. <laughs> it used to, but it seems like the to me. It seems like the negative dark side of human nature, you know, like in the shadow and the light, it's the shadow that's winning. How do you and the band beat that back in your own way? Well, you saw what we tried to do, and that's what we were doing in our own way, because either you do that or you would have joined a radical organization like the Weathermen or something back then and fought the power that way, but you'll, you'll end up dying or in jail. So we tried to make a creative response that would resonate. And, it, and in fact, with a small group of people, it has lasted over time. Like we did something right that has nothing to do with trends, you know, and withstood the test of time. That's why we're even here. Yeah, absolutely. It absolutely withstands the test of time and continues on and continues to march forward. It is very, it, it is timeless music, uh, which is interesting because it was so very different from music in the 70s um, that's timeless in its own way too so gerald just to kind of close things up um yeah. as you look at the industry today just forget the industry as you l- listen yeah. to the sounds that you believe matter or are worth listening to are there any spe- is there any specific artist or movement or anything that that you feel is is shaking it up in a way that you respect yeah, and, and I don't know if I'm qualified to comment on that. I can tell you that because of what's happened in the industry, it becomes much harder to hear anything that might be good. Because it used to be that there was enough of a conduit there and a pipeline that if something was good, everybody heard it. 
And everybody wasn't in their own bubble, just like they are culturally and politically, where these guys listen to this, these guys listen to this, these people listen to this, and they know where to go for this, but nobody together hears anything. So all I hear is the most kind of bland, popular stuff that rises somewhere to the masses. You know, once in a while, I will hear something. I go, God, that's really good. And I'll try to find out who it is. The last thing that just totally blew me away and made me jealous, it was uh, Childish Gambino, This Is America. Yeah. The accompanying video. Yeah. And, and I was just like, oh, that's what I should be doing. That's what I should have done. Why didn't I make that video? Why didn't Debo do a song like that? That guy was, it was not silly. That was right on the money and very fantastic and very truthful. It was great. Absolutely. No, no question. So I completely agree. That video was transformational really? in so many ways. Just the art, the, the ideas, the power, the yeah. song. Yeah. All. Yeah. It was, and it was understated. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. So, for you, so what is next? Of my last question to you, what's next for Devo? Yeah, good question, isn't it? What would be the best is if you know Mark would get the spirit again and we'd write songs, or I get this musical off the ground, which I'm trying hard to do, and and then we write some original material for that musical in addition to using our catalog to drive the narrative. Excellent. That was Gerald Casali, the co-creative force of the iconic and groundbreaking band Debo, sharing his story behind the band's breakout early 80s track Whip It, a song that permeates the zeitgeist and still makes us dance to this day. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti, that's P as in Peter, C like cat, S like Sam, A like apple, T like Tom, H like Harry, and Y like yellow, and at creativemedia.biz. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.